1: of your life redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash star talk today
2: welcome to star talk your place in the universe where science and pop culture collide star talk begins right now This is Star Talks Sports Edition. We're titling this one, Born to Run. Because we're going to get to the bottom of what's going on evolutionarily, biophysically, when the human body decides to run. Away from things or toward things. <laughs> but we're, we're a running people right here. And I got as my co-host, Gary, Gary O'Reilly. Hey, Neil. Good to be here again. Giving authenticity to this program, being a former professional athlete. Uh, and
0: occasionally
2: runner. A, okay, and also you turned sportscaster before we got a hold of you. And so great to have you on Sports Edition. And Chuck, nice. Our stand-up comedian.
1: Yeah. Hey, Neil. Yeah. Good to be here. For someone can't who- wait for our can't wait for our show on Pink Cadillac. Since we're doing a show on Born to Run, oh, yay! Oh <laughs> you guys would have you guys would have jumped on that if I wasn't black. You'd have jumped oh, yeah, right on totally, it, totally, completely. That's right. That's correct. Yeah. Or yeah. it was just a failed joke.
0: <laughs> 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 one, one of those two. <laughs> uh, you can say that. I'm just out that uh, conversation. Well,
2: so uh, in, in the show, we're featuring uh, my interview with Chris McDougall, who was the, his author of the book Born to Run, and we'll be jumping into some clips because uh, he, he, we had some private time with him to tell us what he was about and what his research has been on what it is to go barefoot in this world, whether or not you're running or walking. So that's kind of interesting. But as always, we bring in some academic um, expertise into the mix. And so uh, we, I let me just introduce for you uh, Dr. Herman Ponser. Uh, Herman, welcome to Star Talk.
3: I'm tickled to be here. Very
2: excellent. So you are an associate professor of evolutionary anthropology at Duke, and uh, you, you think about what it is to be human, which I love. Yeah,
3: I love that. how, how do we get I, to be this way, this crazy way we are, and, and what does it mean for today?
2: And, and, you, and you wrote a book, uh, and I think for those who see this in video, might, that might be on your back shelf. Wait. What a coincidence. Huh. What, who put it there?
3: <laughs> That's surprising. That's surprising.
2: Burn. Damn. I love single-word title books. Burn. In the economics of life, calories are the currency. So we did a whole explainer video on calories, by the oh, way. Nice. So that'll dovetail nicely uh, with this episode. So uh, let, let's just get straight into this. Uh, so Herman, you you got your PhD back in two thousand and six, and do you remember the title of your thesis?
3: Oh God, uh, locomotor energetics and economy and evolution in Homo erectus. So I was all all about how changes in the skeleton which we can document, uh, you know, humans have been split from chimps, and bonobos for about 7 million years. And so there's a this big change that happens around 2 million years with the evolution of our genus, genus homo. Wait, wait, wait.
2: I have to correct you because I'm the one out there fixing it when people don't understand it. It's not that that's when we split from chimps. It's that when we and chimps split from each other.
3: Ah, I was I was being too simple, Neil. You're right. And in I'm fact, ju- we did not just them. be. i will going be
2: up in your face. That's fine. That's fine. Being, when our two there's...
3: lineages split, the last time chimpanzees and us all here shared a grandparent, there you was go, seven million years ago, and then for, for four million years or so, four or five million years, we're kind of just these bipedal apes walking around, walking around on two legs, but basically like Ewok <laughs> style, and then around <laughs> two million years ago you see these changes that happen that, that are, the anatomy changes enough, brain changes enough that we say, oh, that's, that's us. That's more like us than animals. That's genus Homo. And along with that comes these changes in our legs and our pelvis. And, and so I was very curious as a, as a young uh, PhD student what that meant for how many calories it takes. to
2: So um, we populated the entire earth upon exiting Africa. And so that seems to me a lot of walking and running. At what point did we have this, if not ability, certainly the urge to do so?
3: Yeah, I think it's the ability to do it is is the key thing. And here's here's what's interesting. People often uh, say that that has to do with running, and it might in a kind of tangential way. Because the way we run, the way we're able to explore a landscape, changes the way that we can eat. Right? It changes the, the menu for us. And all of a sudden, our menu works worldwide. Um, but it isn't like we, I mean, we, we, we did walk into Eurasia, and eventually we walked into North America. Um, but it isn't like we went there straight away, 100, meter, 100 kilometers a day kind of thing. Um, it's more of a population expansion. So you know, it's the same way that that tree species expand their range is kind of the way that we expanded our range. I think, but it, but that was of oh, course the trees
2: didn't the trees didn't walk,
3: but neither did we one, in, in the sense that... <laughs> neither did we. That's my point. That's my point. Right. So it's, you change more and more.
2: I, okay, I had not fully appreciated that it wasn't one single nomadic tribe going thousands of miles.
3: No, that's right, and it, this is why this is what really separates us from the other apes, right? Because chimpanzees, bonobos, gorillas, orangs, the reason they are getting decimated with climate change and forests getting cut down, is that they can't live anywhere else. They
1: can't, right. They can't go anywhere. Mm. Right. Yeah. They're done. Yeah.
3: You cut down our forests, yeah. and we're like, yeah. well, I guess we're going to live in this place now. Hey,
2: and, and Chuck, I like the way uh, Herman's on a first-name basis with the orangutans. He called them the orang. Uh, right. The rest of us, we have to use the full name, orangutan. I mean,
3: once you've okay. handled as much orang urine as I've handled, <laughs> I feel like... Uh,
1: there's a familiarity there. And, 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 and the cool thing is that you can brag about it.
0: You know, <laughs> Now, I, I, mean, know, now real... I need to know if that was intentionally handled. <laughs> oh, or good.
3: I just, just... Pee on you. Yeah, <laughs> no, I pay a lot of money for that orangutan you're in. Um, oh,
1: it's it's... Uh, it's a little too much information there, <laughs> Doc. <laughs> Time to go to our first clip. <laughs> yeah, please, exactly. please. Yeah. Just, please don't tell me that this happened in a hotel in Russia. <laughs> that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. <laughs>
2: That is the sign that we should go to our first clip. <laughs> okay. So, again, we're featuring my interview with Chris McDougall. Uh, he's a journalist who studied anthropological tribes and their running habits. And he learned quite a bit. And so let's pick up on some of what he wanted to share with us about our transition from, what was it, uh, Homo erectus to Homo sapiens. and And is there anything that we still have that other animals don't. Because I, I feel pretty vulnerable when I'm out there in the wild, check
4: it out. You know, there uh, is a uh, professor, Dr. Dennis Bramble, who is kind of curious about the same thing. You know, as a morphologist, he's wondering, why do we give up strength and speed? Because, you know, when you're on all fours, you're stronger and faster.
2: And just to be clear, a morphologist is a person who doesn't study the genetics as much as sort of the, what you look like and your, your general form for how you then function. Is that, is that a fair definition of a morphologist just to, so we're on the same page there?
4: He's basically taking apart the tinker toys and looking at the, the raw parts. Mm-hmm. And so what he's looking at is uh, the human body as an element of engineering. You know, you, we have all these raw parts. How do we assemble it? And what he, what he was perplexed by is creatures that are on all fours are stronger and faster. And at some point in our evolutionary history, we decided, hey, rather than being strong and fast, we'd rather be like skinny and weak. So why do we make, right? That's the ticket. Yeah. <laughs> That'll help us dominate the planet. Let's get skinnier and weaker. Skinny, weak, and slow. And slow. Yeah. So he's like, this makes no sense. Why don't we stay on all fours when we could climb trees and we could compete and fight and we had a lower center of balance? And what he discovered was the second we went upright, a lot of other component factors came into place. Um, and when we came upright, we became these hairless uh, mammals full of springy tendons that could vent heat by perspiration as opposed to respiration. And at that moment in our lives, we made an evolutionary shift from being uh, strong, um, speedy animals into being slower, but uh, slower animals with greater stamina and endurance. And along with that came this whole other grab bag uh, sort of engineering features, such as like the nuchal ligaments. And what what he thought was really cool was at the moment the fossil evidence went from Australopithecus into Homo erectus, you see something showing up in the back of the skull, which is this little hollow groove. And that hollow groove is there to sustain a thing called the nuchal ligament. And the nuchal ligament only does one purpose. It stops your head from bobbing around when you run. And so at that moment in our lives, in our history, we went from being walkers into runners. And along with that became this whole new ability we never had before. So, Doctor, I have to ask, why did we give up
0: strength and speed? This doesn't seem to be the wisest move any species could make. Because if you're out there in the wild, you're going to need both of those to survive. Weren't we
2: happy with strength and speed? What what gives here?
3: The problem is that if you're an ape, right, and you live in a world full of food in these rainforests, you don't have to go very far to get it. And so you can go ahead and specialize in strength and be good at getting up in the trees and, and bolting from a leopard if it chases you. But it doesn't give you the endurance you need to be able to cover all the ground you need to cover if you're going to move into more barren habitats like savannas, or for that matter, if you're going to hunt and gather. Because as soon as you start hunting, there's a lot less food on the landscape for you than there is if you just eat plants, because there's just fewer animals and plants around. So you got to cover more ground. That means you need endurance. That means something's got to give. So it was survival. Well, it was food, right? So it's survival and reproduction. Yeah, i would count
2: that as survival.
3: <laughs> but, so the energy that you're getting, though, yeah, you need to survive. But the reason you need those calories is to reproduce.
1: That's what evolution really cares about, right? It cares about mm-hmm. making babies. So it's both. It's both sides of the coin. When point. we are getting smarter, isn't that like the the biggest thing? You don't need to be big and strong when you're smart, as evidenced by nerds running the world today, okay? <laughs> you, you just don't need it. I mean, let's, let's be honest. I mean, Batman versus Superman. Batman wins. Why? Because he's smarter than Superman. You know, that's basically the deal. Doc, before we get to that bit of the, the brain
0: kicking in, and I'm sure we're going to do that later in the show, nuchal ligaments are one thing, but having a ligament in my neck that's stronger and keeps my head stable doesn't really enable me to run, does it? So what, what happened between the great apes and our ancestors for, for us to be able to become these 50, 100-mile runners? What, what goes on? What springy tendons, what bits and bobs do we acquire? Yeah,
3: yeah. So legs get longer, okay? The pelvis Ooh. gets a bit narrower. And so all of that is helping keep the, the, the forces that come up through the ground. Know, as, your, as your foot hits the ground, bam. There's an equal and opposite force, right? As we all know, that comes back up through your skeleton, and keeping those, uh, keeping your, your pelvis narrow, helps you do, helps you handle those forces. And having a longer legs means you're covering more ground per stride, which means if if you um this is a fun one, if you have a when you buy a cup of coffee, that's you know wherever you buy your cups of coffee to go, you get a mm-hmm. top on that coffee. Why? Because if you don't, you slosh it around as you're walking, even though you don't notice that because everything seems still to you. Your body's going up and down, up and down, up and down with every step. If you have longer legs, there's less of that roller coaster up and down, up and down, which means less energy because every time you go up and down, there's energy lost there. And so longer legs save you calories when you walk and run. Um, So longer legs, narrower pelvis, bigger joint surfaces to handle the loads of all this stuff. All these things are changing. And then he
0: talks about here we go. There's a phrase I've just learned from this interview: ventilation through perspiration is better than through respiration. So, so
3: I, I sweat through my skin rather than pant
0: like a dog or something like that. Is that where we are?
3: Yes, yeah, so that's another big one. We get hairless, right? And we get we, humans are the sweatiest animals on the planet. Ten times more sweat glands per unit of area of your skin than any other primate, for sure, and, and I think than any other mammal. Um, and but, but horses can sweat up a storm. They can we think. sweat, yeah. they can. They've got a little short hair to help them do better at that. Uh, but they, they still don't sweat as well or as much per surface area as we do. Mm. And if people say you sweat like a pig, but actually pigs don't sweat. Wow,
2: yeah. so we're some funky pigs folks. Pigs don't
3: have pores. Uh, yeah. yeah,
2: We're some funky folks. Yeah. Wow. And, and that's
3: what that gets to actually is that it, not, it isn't just the frame that changes, right? It's also this engine. And so one of the things that we've been looking at in my lab is, is how metabolic rate changes and how you can burn energy faster and higher and longer, right? We can rev our engines for longer uh, than the other apes can too. So that's a whole other thing that changes, not just, not just the frame, but also the engine.
2: Well, let me get back to, to my interview with McDougall. And I, I had to ask him, what did our ancestors do with those anatomical changes? It's one thing to have the changes, but is there something, can you do anything interesting with it? Let's check it out.
4: How did the human brain get so big so fast? Because, you know, humans are, are arrived on the planet, hum- Homo erectus, about 2 million years ago. The first projectile weapons arrived about 10,000 years ago.
2: Just to be clear, a projectile weapon, you don't mean cannon. You mean throwing. <laughs> you mean the, the, the ability to throw.
4: Or like, um, like a bow and arrow, a spear, things like that. Things mm-hmm. you're, you're throwing. Yeah. And so the problem is this. You have humans with a brain developing very quickly, getting really big and fat really fast that kind of brain requires a lot of caloric energy. Yet the first bow and arrow only shows up about 10,000 years ago. So you have more than a million years where we're eating a lot of stuff to sustain this energy-sucking brain, yet we don't really have the weaponry to bring down big game. So the question becomes, how the heck are humans eating calorically dense proteins when they don't have the weapons to kill them? And the theory becomes, it was our ability to run long distances to do what's known as persistence hunting to go out there on a savanna as a group, run long distances and chase our prey into heat exhaustion. And here's the fascinating part about this is they've actually done this in Africa and watched indigenous groups chase antelope and kudu into submission. And it takes exactly as long to run an antelope into heat exhaustion as it takes the average marathoner to run a marathon.
3: Yeah, so it's interesting that, you know, we sort of recreationalize uh, this survival behavior that we, we, maybe we've evolved to do which is to run down animals to exhaustion which is probably a, a you know an important piece of how homo erectus made its living
2: wait a minute so they can improve the marathon by having them chase an antelope
3: <laughs> they've got the running of the
2: bulls the wrong way around so tell me about this high density food because you're you're mr calorie man if i don't have weapons yet to take down an animal i still need the high calories to sustain my brain, where am I getting the calories? Yeah.
3: From? So you're getting it from if you're a hominin like us, you're getting it from two things that other apes don't have. You're getting it from a fair amount of meat, which you know hunter gatherers kind of balance about half their calories from meat, half their calories from plants. And you're getting it wait, wait, so that's
2: how so that's we got the meat from from, from wearing them out. Well from wearing them down. out. But okay, also so
3: here's the other thing. We also cook our food, right? Which Chris doesn't get into there, but you know, cooking is also a really big deal because it, it helps you digest your food sort of externally and you get a lot more bang for your buck that way. Um, and then also, you know, don't forget, you still got a lot of the group that's out getting plant foods. And so that's helping to fund the whole thing, too. Because even if you're really good at running, it's still a pretty risky endeavor to kind of go spend your day trying to run something down. You come home empty-handed, you're done. But if you can share with people, hunt and gather, now you've got something that's a winning strategy. So, Doc, are we now
0: migrating with herds, major herds. We've seen, we've all watched David Attenborough on TV show us these thousands and thousands of beasts traversing continents and countries and things. Are we now following them or are we just like, go out, hunt, come back to base? Probably the second one.
2: Wait, 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 Gary, when you said now, you mean back then?
1: Back then. Now.
2: Okay. So now, because I know I'm not doing that. <laughs> right. Yes. <yeah. laughs>
1: Getting your car. But I, I did once follow the Grateful Dead. Does that count? Oh, <laughs> no. <laughs> I don't know. Were you feeding
3: along with them? Were you eating the Grateful <laughs> Dead as you went? I mean, that would be the. Uh,
1: you... no, just, just binging on <laughs>
3: Jerry Garcia, Ben and Jerry's. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting question. We don't know for sure, but probably not migrating with them, because again, it's hunting and gathering, right? And so the way that that works is we agree where we're going to end up at the end of the day, right? So you have, you have we're coming home at the end of the day to the same place, and maybe that place moves week to week or even month to month or something like that. So you can kind of migrate over time, but you're probably not following herds. The way you can figure this out, this is interesting, you can actually look at the isotopes in the fossilized teeth, right? Because there's a different isotopic signature in the rainwater and in the surface water uh, of oxygen isotopes as you move from north to south because of the gradient of temperature and evaporation. And so, and there's also, there's other isotopes you could use also to track location. And we could do that, right? We could find out is, does somebody end up with a, a tooth isotope signature that's hundreds, maybe thousands of kilometers away from where they, we find them? And that would be the way to find mm. out. But that hasn't, we, nobody's shown that yet. So that's out there waiting to be, to be just demonstrated.
2: Okay. So I grow my tooth earlier in my life. That's right. Later in my life, I'm now a thousand miles from where that happened. And so that tells you a lot.
3: Yeah, exactly. In wow. fact, they use it to okay. like track wildlife finds and all this kind of stuff. Uh, you, you can do it. Anyway, it, it, that's exactly what you would do. Okay, so just to be clear,
2: and correct me if I'm wrong, Herman, I'm going to show off my little, little bit of knowledge here. Mm. So water molecule H2O has two, two hydrogens and one oxygen, and native oxygen has 16 particles in its nucleus. But isotopic oxygen has 18 in its nucleus. It's got two extra neutrons. And so if you have water with oxygen 18 in it, mixed together with water with oxygen 16, oxygen 16 is going to evaporate slightly more preferentially to the one with the oxygen 18 because it's lighter. Mm-hmm. And so if you were in more uh, the climates closer to the equator, the, your ground water supply will have more oxygen 18 relative to oxygen 16.
3: Did I get that right, Herman? That's it. That's it. In a nutshell, exactly how it works. Yeah, I want a gold star for that. Points for you. Okay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I didn't know we were getting gold stars handed out. This is a new This is a new
3: thing. I theme. think Neil's already won a bunch of gold stars. It looks like. Okay. Yeah, wait, 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 but Herman, what it means is you
2: can't detect this if they only go east-west, only if they go north You
3: would have to use other things. So there are other isotopes in the in landscapes. For like, example, strontium isotopes can vary depending on the ground, on, on the, the rock in the ground and how that seeps into the water. Okay, and so you've so you you got whole, many
2: tools. There's, there's a many of isotopes belt. you could use. Okay, cool.
3: Yeah. Very cool.
2: Yeah, all right. Uh, we're going to take a break, but any fast questions on this before we go to a break? Gary.
0: Is, is this, I mean, per, all right, doctor, quickly. Is persistence herding, if I am running 55 miles to hunt down this beast, I'm doing a lot of running, is it worth it? Because the calories I expend as to the calories I get back.
2: And do you, per, it, are you going to haul the thing back to the tribe?
3: Exactly. That doesn't sound mm, like it makes depends. sense. If it's big enough, you probably move camp. Yeah. So the hunter-gatherers I work with, uh, it's a community called the Hadza in northern Tanzania. If they get something really, really big, they might move camp for a few days. But even a zebra, which is mm. pretty dang big, they'll haul Ooh, back to camp. Oh. Right, In
0: pieces,
1: yeah. Pieces,
3: not all at once. So wow.
0: Maybe they capture it and not yeah. kill it, then they can walk it back. Excellent idea. <laughs>
1: Better yet, let's just ride it back. <laughs> make make it do the work.
2: <laughs> brilliant. Chuck, that is completely brilliant. If they were only domesticatable. All right, let's take a quick break. When we come back, more of my interview with Wow. and we have in studio today for professor herman punzer who thinks all about the evolution of what it is to be human
1: working moms have way too many to do's switch to h&r block and have an expert do your taxes for you
2: We're back, talk Sports Edition. We're talking about running, walking, how these became things that humans do. And I've got Professor Herman Ponser, Associate Professor of Evolutionary Anthropology at Duke University. And that's North Carolina, if I remember correctly. Uh, Is that right? Yeah. And uh, Chris McDougall, who's a journalist who's written about this. So we've got the journalist and the scientist together, which is a, a, a brilliant and deadly combination. Of knowledge and insight and life experience that we're bringing to the page here, and for uh, this, I want to start off first thinking about our brains, and did uh, about our ingenuity outstripping evolution—is that a thing that can happen? And what? And and let's go straight to our next clip with Chris McDougal and get to the bottom of it. Check it out.
4: Yeah, again, it's it's one of those kind of mysteries of the evolutionary trail. Uh, the, the best kind of scenario you can come up, come up with is that as the planet was warming, there was um, a new genetic offspring, a new, a new adaptation. A Homo erectus baby was born that was more comfortable standing upright, and that person was able to run. And it became those Homo erecti who were able to run long distances that began to thrive on the planet. So, uh, And as they were able to thrive, they had the protein energy which fueled the expansion of this brain.
2: What intrigues me is eventually our brain has other sort of smarts going for it, and then we perfect projectile weapons, right? So as you said, the bow and arrow, ultimately the gun. So we don't have to chase a damn thing, okay? You could stand 100 meters away and take down your protein for the next week. And so so this talent, let me call it that, this skill set, this genetic skill set that we have as humans, would lose the need to continue to be honed once we develop tools of, of killing. Is
4: that a fair claim to make? That's exactly right. You know, once again, our ingenuity has outstripped our evolution. And it'd be kind of a fun, an experiment to do right now. Whereas it takes three hours to catch a kudu, how long would it take for you to hit a button on your phone and have a burrito show up at your door? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> So, it's not only how
2: long, it is what is your investment of calories to obtain those calories. If to, to obtain calories required more calories than what you earned, you're a dead species quickly. You will go extinct fast. So, you need, the, so it's got to cost you fewer calories to get it than to eat it. So, yeah, that's a whole, other, that's a whole, that's a whole, another, another
3: there. Uh, you're absolutely right. We get a lot more calories per you know, hour of work now than we used to. So um, your average blue-collar worker in the United States today with an hour's worth of wages can go to the store and easily buy 20,000 kilocalories of food. Um, so that's enough for like, you know, a week. If you're a Hadza man or woman, like community I work with, the hunter-gatherers, an hour's worth of work gets you somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 calories of food. So that's 10 times less, an order of magnitude less Um, then you can get, you know, then you or I can get uh, just kind of in our daily lives. It's a huge change. So absolutely, you know, and and then we can talk about how that contributes to obesity and all these kind of issues that we have now.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
3: The one other thing I'd add is this. Go ahead. Uh, Weirdly, you talked about, well, you know, a species can't exist if it burns more calories to get the food than it gets in the food that, that it acquires. True. But do you know? But because we use fossil fuel energy to produce our food, we burn eight kilocalories of energy to produce one kilocalorie of food. Wow! We are in—we're we're circling the drain
1: here. Uh, so we got to figure that one out. That's uh, a whole separate well, question. One thing that we can do—not for that, what you just said—but in terms of the obesity aspect, because it makes sense from an evolutionary standpoint that our bodies are kind of designed to work for food. So maybe we should have the evolutionary diet where all your food is just on a little cart that you got to chase around (laughs) for a few hours before you get to eat. I like it, I like
3: it. You know, the supermarket, all the food's under two feet of dirt. You got to get it out with a digging stick. Yeah, exactly, yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) This is not going to catch up. (laughs) Just, just, Just saying right now. I'm not digging yeah. whole <laughs> no. foods.
1: Instead of whole foods, it's whole foods. Yes. Big a whole, whole foods.
3: <laughs> I'll tell you what, too, when you dig for two hours to get the, the carcass, because all the salsa has to be a carcass and not like a little chop, you're gonna eat the zebra testicles, you know? You're gonna eat the spleen because you're gonna be like, dang it, I worked for it. It's gonna change everybody's mentality about what's what's good food.
1: No, well, no, Doc, too. I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm doing that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> the
0: an insight into the nice household. Chuck, <laughs> <laughs> nice.
1: Daddy, what's for dinner? <laughs> zebra testicles. Whatever awesome. I can dig up. You're going to eat every bit of your zebra testicles, damn it. <laughs> so, I mean, Doc, if, if
0: our brain is developing, right, at what rate is it developing in terms of our anatomy? Mm. Because we, we really haven't changed in about 2 million or so years. But have our brains changed at a
3: greater rate? Yeah, so I, I guess I'll push back on Chris a little bit there because the, anatomy, the running anatomy shows up you know 2 million years, 1.5 million years ago. Brains don't really get big, like this big, until you mm. know maybe half a million years ago. Even yeah, our species like doesn't show up until
1: 600,000 years ago. Well,
3: 300,000 wow. yeah, 300 300, years ago for Homo sapiens, right? Um, and so, and our brains are super expensive. Your brains uh, run the equivalent, uh, you know, it's the equivalent of running a five k full
2: college day. education inside is like four hundred thousand dollars. <laughs>
3: super <laughs> <laughs> expensive. <laughs> <Well, laughs>
2: <what's that laughs> I'm calories. Elite, elite college education here, but yeah, go on. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Un-
1: unless, unless your parents are Hollywood elites. Oh. In which, in which case? Oh, they're no. all in jail now.
2: Yeah. That's oh, right. that's right. Oh, no. oh good. Mm-hmm. Is that a case of ingenuity Sorry.
1: getting ahead of your, uh, where you're supposed to be? I'm not
2: yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: So once we get this brain development, Doc, do we then start to think, well, I'll hit the speed dial for the burrito. I won't have to go dig myself and chase myself, my protein. I mean, what, what sort of point are we when we no longer need? Have we gone through this running phase to find our food
2: yeah our body is designed for something that our brain has just completely rendered obsolete
3: yeah no that's true i would say i would push it back further than
1: than the speed dial for your pizza i'd push it back to farming i was about to say uh, domestication and farming would mm. have to be because at that point your food you're growing your food, and you're growing your meat,
2: and your, folk, and your food comes to you. Yeah,
1: right. Yeah, that's right.
3: And we change our foods, we breed them so that they produce more calories. An animal, a domesticated livestock, has twice as many fat calories on it than a wild animal does. The wild, same size. That's
1: right. So we're changing that. And metabolism. even what you feed it, even what you feed it, like there's grass fed, and then there's corn fed, and like, and the difference is one is fattier, and one's more sinewy. You know, one
2: Thanksgiving, I said, you know, I'm going to get a wild turkey this Thanksgiving. I cooked that wild turkey. did want a damn bit of meat. <laughs> um, <laughs> I said, give me my Purdue chicken back. That's classic give me my tasting. You should drink my- your
3: wild turkey. Don't, don't eat it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, I mean, what, at what point are we finding ourselves going from coming out of forests and woodland into Savannah to then finding ourselves herding, farming,
3: and settlements? What sort of timeline yeah, is that between... That's a long time. Because we're moving into savannas and hunting and gathering two and a half to two million years ago, let's say. And you're not farming until 12,000 years ago. So if you, if you thought about the whole, you know, the history of the genus Homo, 95, 98% of it, you can do the math quickly,
1: is hunting and gathering. And it's just this last blink of an eye. Okay, so this is a tiny bit off topic. So with respect to uh, that whole brain thing and us getting our food, when do we see these communities dotting the earth in such a way that they stay by water and then they're fishing communities?
2: That's yeah, so a transition from the plain, plain, plains living to coastal living. Yeah,
1: coastal living.
3: So what's ama- amazing about genus Homo is it isn't just on the savannas; they are everywhere. And then, like as soon as we find them, they're everywhere. Like so just poof, right, every landscape. And so we see them on coastal coastal areas. We see them in the mountains. We see them in the savannas. Uh, That hunting and gathering strategy is a world beater. And and they're just absolutely everywhere. And you're going to see pockets everywhere doing different foods kind of things depending on what's around. Okay, so in
2: in spite of Uber Eats on speed dial, um, the fact is there's still cultures out there where running is the the kind of running you do to chase down an antelope. They're still doing it just like for fun. And Chris McDougall studies just that. Just check it out.
4: If I'd say, hey, Neil, there's one thing I can give you, a little pill that's going to blow out uh, obesity and diabetes and depression and suicidal fixations. It will basically cure every leading cause of death in the United States, minus one or two. Would you take the pill? Yeah. Okay. What if I told you the pill is for free? You don't have to spend any money. Go out your door and you can get it in 45 minutes.
2: Yeah, I know. Okay. I see what you're doing there. Okay. All right. So they have a level of health sustained just by this habit that they have that... Um, puts them in a very special place, especially relative to the rest of the Western world.
4: So here's, here's a fascinating thing, too. Another uh, series of components, either coincidence or correlation, but the Taro are nonviolent. They are very communal. They are not capitalistic. They don't accumulate a bunch of stuff. Uh, th- their cancer rates are believed to be very low. Their depression rates seem to be very low. Very low instances of cardiovascular disease. Basically, anything that would win you multiple Nobel Prizes today... They've had for ten thousand years, and so maybe the question is, you know, why, you know, why do they run? The question, is, why don't we? Wait, wait. So were
2: they all hiding under a rock? How is it that you, in this the twenty first century, end up discovering them? How come this all this wasn't out hundred years ago or two hundred years ago when anthropologists are running amuck? European anthropologists are running amok all around the world, riding up every culture that's even a little bit different from their own.
4: Well, I think for two reasons. One is the question that you looked at. You know, um, we don't want to run. It's not fun. The thing about it is the the supposition is that running is this kind of unpleasant thing. And if people do it, they're kind of weird. And where that comes from is the fact that, you know, evolutionarily, we develop two things at once, you know, a body designed for movement and a brain designed to save calories at all costs. And so what we're always trying to do is avoid emergencies where we're going to deplete our caloric uh, reserves. And so for most of our evolutionary history, it made a ton of sense for us to not run. Only run when you have to. But the difficulty is we basically removed all the emergencies from our lives as soon as we got vehicular transportation. Up until about 100 years ago, everything was human powered. And then suddenly nothing is human powered anymore. And so the difficulty is our brain is still telling us, dude, stay on the sofa. You never know when a saber-toothed tiger is going to come after you. But the tigers are now gone. And the reason why anthropologists and others haven't really focused on the Taromara is I think that they were sort of written off as this own special little, odd, little oddball group doing its own special thing, that there wasn't a universal transferable skill. And I think that's what we're starting to rediscover today.
2: Interesting. Very interesting. So this, this is kind of like an anthropological bias. So, so the Taromara. Are, there's a tribe in Mexico that he studied, and he he hung out with them and wrote about them. And I'm still amazed that they were mostly unknown to the rest of the Western world that completely surrounds them, north and south, and 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 to the left and right of them. So I, I'm I'm in, I'm intrigued by that. And so so uh, Herman, would you say that this skill that they have of just loving to run, running great distances over great amounts of time, that this is just left over? from this period of time where we evolved that to chase down our antelope?
3: Yeah, I think it's left over. I think it speaks to this capacity that humans have to run uh, that we don't always use, but that we, you know, some cultures have really taken advantage of economically to run down prey. Some just do because it's fun, like the Tarahumara. Um, I push back a little bit on what Chris was saying there. I don't think it's that people have ignored running in other cultures. I think it's very specific to where you live, right? So the Hadza who I work with, um, they don't run. And in fact, we. Where they based? They're based where? They're in northern Tanzania, savannah, classic Mm -hmm. savannah landscape, exactly where you'd expect. And they might run, and they don't. Um, And we know this because we have them wear little wearable GPS when they go out. So we have like two thousand people days of of uh, speed and location of, and, and we can tell they never run. And they're still as healthy as a tarumara. They have low blood pressure, uh, you know, no cardiovascular oh, disease, all that stuff. So So um, you have to be active to be that healthy, but you don't have to run specifically. And, you know, I think it's like any other capacity that humans have that not all cultures express the same degree. The tarmar like to run, but not everybody does. And,
2: and you plus you left out the fact that there's no Krispy Kreme vendors.
3: I know it's diet and exercise, <laughs> of course, but uh, yeah, sadly. <laughs> And every time, every time you kill a zebra, it's it's just still testicles. There's no Krispy Kreme in there either. But I still I
2: still <laughs> want to do what Chuck says. You you don't kill them. You ride them back, and then
1: right, let them do work ride them back, back and snack on them on the way. <laughs> <man>. <laughs> it's just brilliant. Chuck. I mean, that's there what
3: you know. that's what dairy <laughs> cattle would do, right? That's basically what that is. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's leave
0: the zebra testicles behind for the <laughs> moment, hopefully forever. Uh, is it is it a fact that through our evolution, humans are kind of born to do anything high energy? Is it is it that kind of thing we've got going on here?
3: Yeah, I think that that's that's where we're coming down now, and that's actually a lot of the work that Chris has talked about. Well, a lot of the stuff that he, you know, motivated our field to look into more deeply is okay. Well, humans can run. Absolutely, that's true. Um, let's follow that up and see, does everybody run all the time, where, when? And it's been really fun to kind of see how that plays out. So like I said, we don't see the HODs running as much, but absolutely, groups do. And what it seems to be is that that humans um, are evolved to be high energy apes, basically. Right? We have these engines that run hot, we have these high metabolic rates, we are able to do endurance stuff that, that other apes cannot do at all, including running if we want. We also can walk a lot, you know, we can cover a lot of ground that way too. So it's kind of uh, running is one piece of this overall endurance ape. But Herman, if a, so if a gorilla is
1: chasing you, can you outrun it? If you can make the first 50 feet,
3: you'll be all right. Oh,
4: very good to wow. know.
1: Look at that. Good to know. Oh. Yeah.
4: yeah. Okay. Yeah, I was going
1: to say, the good problem up. is 25 feet in, he's on top of you. <laughs> <laughs> <That's>, that, <laughs> damn, halfway. Halfway. <laughs> oh. <laughs>
2: Uh, oh man all right good
1: thing is though gorillas are not very violent so that's that's a good thing you know
2: is that true is that true herman no
1: if they feel that you're a threat no i mean i mean in terms of approaching uh you know being a threat they're not like if you're threatening them you're in trouble but but they don't they don't go a gorilla is like this hey look man i'm not looking for any trouble (laughs) Right. <laughs> that's a gorilla in a nutshell. But if you hey, bring look, me trouble, man. you gonna get right. it. Okay, yeah, all right. right. All I'm right. not looking for any trouble, but if you want some, <laughs> <laughs> mm. <laughs> Chuck, I'm gonna write a paper with
3: you on this on on, uh, on gorilla behavioral ecology. We're gonna that's, yeah. that's it. That's, that's the paper. It. I love it,
2: guys. We got to take a quick break, but when we come back, we'll have more of my featured interview with journalist and uh, anthropology seeker Chris McDougal. Uh, and we have in studio Dr. Ponzer, Herman Ponzer, because he's telling us all about how we became human and what mattered for having done so. And we're going to look into Dr. Ponzer's new book, Burn, when you Return.
1: Hey, it's time to give a Patreon shout-out to the following Patreon patrons. Alex Ornellus and Albert Hulk. Guys, thank you so much for all that you do to make this show happen. Without you, we couldn't make it. And for anybody else who would like their very own Patreon shout-out, please go to patreon.com slash Radio and support us.
2: We're back, sports edition, Star Talk. We're talking about human evolution for running and walking, featuring my uh, interview with Chris McDougal. He's a journalist and a, and a sort of amateur anthropologist who studied the Mexican Tarahumara tribe. And all they do is run all day and night. And they never sleep, apparently. No. <laughs> when they're not running, when they're not do- doing anything else, they're running, okay? And we're trying to get to the bottom of that. Uh, but and Chuck, nice. You you tweet at just Chuck Nice Comic. Thank you, sir. Yes, I do. Yeah, and Gary, you tweet at My Three Left Feet.
1: Yes, uh, we I need do, to sir.
2: A, get an anthropologist to look into that, please. Uh, do if we can. All right, and uh, let's go straight to that first clip, just to get to the bottom of who the Tara Humara actually are. Check it out.
4: You know, Neil. Every time I would go to a doctor and ask them about why I was injured, I got the same answer, which is running is bad for the body, and I believe yeah. that thing. That uh, bias has really affected how we look at the Tarahumara.
2: Now, about them as a, tr- as a tribe, how, uh, how mixed are they with the Spanish influence on the Americas going back, I guess now, 400, 500 years? Or are they, are they have a sort of a more pure lineage from those who were first peoples in the Americas?
4: From a social standpoint, they are very reclusive. You know, when the conquistadors arrived, the Mayans and the Aztecs fought back and were decimated. The Tarahmada retreated and hid and that's why they're in the copper canyons they have deliberately isolated themselves physiologically have they um, mixed with other people's absolutely so it's not like we're talking about some kind of like thoroughbred bloodline that's not what the the trail is here. The trail is that they maintain the same practices It's not that their bloodline has remained separate it's that their behavior has remained the same do we
2: know of any other cultures or tribes in the world that carry on this way?
4: Yeah, you know, and that's what's so cool about it is, first of all, when you look at sort of mythology and folklore, every group has a story about people running animals to death. It's universal. Every culture in the world, from Mongolia to uh, Ohio, there are folklore about people running animals to death. So there is sort of an evidentiary trail that's going on. As far as today, you know, the San people, you know, the, the Kalahari Bushmen to this day still run animals to death. So that's kind of the cool thing about it is you had these myths, so it had to come from somewhere. And in those few pockets where people still live by persistence hunting, they still practice the same tradition today.
2: And it is interesting to me that you can run them to death and this requires no weapons at all. Uh, so so Herman, uh, so in that brief exchange, we touched on some earlier topics as well. Uh, I'm just wondering, is the this this ability to run we've sort of preserved in our sports, I guess, you know, the, the, I guess that was an urge because we can. Does your line of, of anthropological research come into modern times? Or are you just back, back when, uh, before there was the Olympics?
3: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm interested in how the body got to be the way it is, you know, physiologically and anatomically. And all of that change, you know, that changes so slowly. That kind of that story gets boring about ten thousand years ago, and you have all these really re- recent changes that happen with farming and being sedentary, but those aren't evolutionary changes so much as lifestyle changes in our bodies. You know, aren't aren't being used the same way? Are you,
2: are you saying the all of civilization is such of a blip on your timeline? You're not even interested in it?
3: Yes.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
3: People get boring. The only thing that's interesting is, is that we change the way we do our, you know, that we get energy. Uh, we start getting energy more explicitly from, from the things we farm. And then from fossil fuels, which is uh, its own story. Is there a, a, a bias?
2: Because for d- medical doctors to say you're running too much, running is bad, you will hurt your knees, you're, the musculoskeletal system, it cannot handle as much running as you're doing, even training for marathons. You don't want to run too many marathons because the one you're training for, you'll be... And so I've, I've read and I've heard about all this. Meanwhile, we have the, this tribe in Mexico that's the opposite of this. So, so is this a bias? What, what's going on here?
3: Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, you have a Western medical world that sees, you know, Americans, your typical American off the street, typically white Americans, by the way, typically males as that's what normal humans are. Right, and so if that if that's your blindered view of what normal is, uh, then you've got a really strange idea about what the body can handle. Because it, it's true that if you are completely out of shape, and you start running training for a marathon, yeah, you might hurt yourself. Right, you kind of, if you grow up in it, that you, that's a, that's a level of, of training right there. And then if you just be careful about how you start, anybody can start. But but yeah, absolutely. I mean. Uh, I always enjoy my trips to the doctor because it's funny. It's, it's the anthropologist meets the MD and we have different
1: perspectives on, on how the body ought to work. Uh, and, and, and You just, you just <laughs> had into a fight the whole time, right? <laughs> and wouldn't it be true that, I mean, from uh, if, if you look at these other indigenous people, they were never running on pavement. Well, that's another big thing. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that's right. Like, that's right. And also they have low levels of
3: inflammation, right? So, so arthritis is as much as anything an, an inflammation disease and we and they have we have high levels of of chronic inflammation which is your immune system just kicking away being active without any reason here in the states and in the industrialized world you got low levels of background inflammation in places where people are active all the time
2: would you say the olympics is a way to try to remember these roots that you study
3: yeah, I like it. I mean, you know, I'm not sure if like curling really gets us back to our roots. <laughs> We're uh, synchronized swimming. You know, Sorry, I, okay. uh, when I go over to the Hads, I don't see a lot of yeah synchronized swimming. Not a, not a big thing that the Hadza do. Uh, but
0: um, <laughs> they're missing out, Doc. Really, the beauty of synchronized
3: swimming. Got to you got to okay. love I'll bring that. bring some pictures next time and try to engender that kind of appreciation. <laughs> oh man,
2: we we had it. We had we had a sports court. Here in our sports mm. edition, one time, and the question is Should certain activities be turned into Olympic sports? And one of the, the question was Should what
0: was it, uh, Gary? Gaming? Uh, oh, there was esports versus breakdancing. Oh, we, <laughs> and, and <laughs> you, you, your decision, sir, I was, was I forgot I was the judge, yes, of I course was. you were. So, your decision was based on the fact Would it have appeared on the side of a Greek urn, and therefore. Yeah. Esports,
1: had nowhere to plug in, so it didn't <laughs> get involved. I can imagine breakdancing on the side of a Grecian yeah, urn. Yeah. Let me tell you, but, I've but, seen a few the, Grecian urns where it looked like they were breakdancing. <laughs> there you go.
2: <laughs> but none of them hunched over, over a computer. But I think, Neil,
1: you've made a great
0: point there. With the Olympics, and we've always seen it as the pursuit of excellence, hmm. I think there's another thing behind it where we retain the ability to jump distance, jump over something. Hmm. Run further, run fastest. Stuff that basically, doctor, you will have studied in a natural environment. So the
2: anthropology
0: games. I love it. That's what we should have. There you go. I got some great ideas for us,
2: guys. Or, Or you have a, you pull out a subset of the Olympics that come closest to what we evolutionarily developed out of what you studied for us. Yes. And then that becomes the, anth- the anthropology games. I love
3: javelin it. Javelin stays, okay, we just... for sure. Javelin stays. Ja-
2: javelin stays. Wrestling definitely stays. Yeah. So course. the
3: discus,
0: what would that be? Like a dinner plate. Um, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you just get to throw as many dinner plates to no, no, someone the truck.
2: says <laughs> people. Someone says, pass the fried chicken. I'm not getting up. Here, I'll fling it to you. That's
3: right. <laughs> we we'll jump us out, though. That's ridiculous. Come on. I mean, what kind of, I guess that's, Oh, maybe that's going across the river. You skip across the stones across the river. Yeah, I don't know. yeah. yeah. so it's, it's all, it's
0: all going to have a natural element. Well, here, to it. I, I, well, okay, we, my
3: next clip yes.
2: with Chris McDougall is about what happens if you actually have this Mexican tribe compete against uh, anyone else who is sort of training as a runner wow. in the traditional ways. Let's see what happens out of that. Check it out.
4: You know, part and parcel... With the Tarahumara's ability to run long distances, is the fact that they're not necessarily interested in what we're interested in. You know, we we sort of glorify a gold medal and a Nike sponsorship, and that means nothing to them. And so, in the past, a couple times, they have brought Tarahumara runners to the Olympic Games and twenty-six miles, and they would finish the twenty-six miles kind of middle of the pack, unimpressed by the whole spectacle. I you mean, know, twenty-six miles, dude—that's that's the warm-up. When's the race start? <laughs>
2: That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. bring in the 50-mile race. There you go.
4: Which is exactly what happened. So in the mid-1990s, there was a, a race, the Leadville Trail 100, which was the premier ultramarathon in the United States at the time. And a group of Tarahumara runners were brought up from the Copper Canyons to compete in Leadville, and they just devastated the field. It was like nine of the top 10 runners were Tarahumara, and the 10th guy had to stop to like tie your shoe. Otherwise, it would have been a clean sweep.
2: <laughs> wait, wait. So this is a 100-mile race. I didn't even know such a race existed.
4: Yeah. It actually began as, as a horse race. It was a horse race in uh, California. And then one guy thought, well, my horse is sick. Maybe I'll just run it myself. And he discovered that he was capable of running 100 miles. And so in the mid-1990s, this, this began in Colorado at 12,000 feet. And when the Tarahumata, who had never trained, didn't really know about the race, were brought to the starting line It just took off and devastated the American runners. So Reebok actually sponsored the trip because they wanted to have a a commercial with these indigenous tribe uh, runners in their shoes. And instead, right before their race, they went to the town dump, got some old tires, cut out a sole, and then strapped on a pair of old car tires and threw away the Reeboks and competed in the race in homemade sandals from the dump they made that morning. So Herman, the tribes
2: you studied in Tanzania, uh, what kind of similarities do you see between them and the Taharamara
3: Yeah, well, so they're both really active all day. They're both getting, you know, as much physical activity in a day that, you know, as, as you and I get in a week. Um, so they're super physically active. The The difference is, uh, is that, you know, the, the folks I work with don't run to accumulate all that activity. They, they're mostly walking or, or climbing trees to get honey or digging the ground to get tubers, that kind of
1: thing. Wow.
2: Well, so tell me, how does this play out in calories? Because your book, Burn, is all about that, and if it seems to me, if I'm running all day, I'll be burning more calories than if I'm not running all day. And so, what what gives here? What's yeah? You know, when we think of calories, we think of exercise, but of course, we burn
3: a lot of calories just to stay warm-blooded, right? That's right. Yeah, I mean, your brain brain burns 300 calories, kilo calories a day. Uh, your liver does the same. I mean, you know, your immune system's up and down all through the day and, and your stress reactivity. All this. So you're burning calories on everything. You got 37 trillion cells that are all burning calories. You're burning um, calories, play or, pay or play, you're burning calories. That's right. No matter right. what. Okay. That's right. And so uh, so actually some of the earliest work that we did with the Hadza group uh, was to go out and measure how many calories you burn every day. So we use this cool isotope tracking technique that allows us to figure out how much carbon dioxide the body's expelling every day. And if you expire carbon dioxide, it has to be calories. And so it's this really precise way to get calories per day um, with these men and women in the Hadza community. And even though they're really physically active, five times more than Americans, they burn the same number of calories every day as men and women in the US and Europe and other industrialized countries. So their activity isn't changing the number of calories, it's changing the way those calories are spent.
2: Wow. So pressing the button on the remote, is real exercise then that's what you're saying
3: now here's the problem neil it's not and so your body's (laughs) going to find a way to burn that that energy so it's sort of like it isn't sort of like how do they spend so few calories it's like well how do we spend so many and the answer is we've got sky high inflammation levels and we have we react to stress too much we have have higher cortisol and and adrenaline levels we have so our bodies are doing this all this overactivity stuff that's really bad for you so we burn our calories we burn
1: our calories through worrying (laughs) <laughs> yes. It's true. It's
3: true. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and so it's, it's bad for you to not spend those calories on exercise. You spend them on exercise. That's what we're evolved to do. If, if you spend them clicking your remote. Bad news. So tell me, what is the main point in your
2: burn book? If, if, you, if we're going to make this a bestseller, what are people going to get most out of it?
3: They are going to find out how diet and exercise actually affect your body right, how the calories in that we take on the diet, how, that, how your body burns all that off and all the things it does every day and how things like exercise and activity actually affect the way that your body works. You got to do both. Um, but th- this book tells you how, and it, it gets away from all the fad BS stuff. Because as, as somebody who actually does research on this, it pains me to see the diet books and the fad, you know, the, you know metab- metabolic code and all this stuff. And it's like, come on, man.
2: Yeah, yeah, Herman, I, I have to share that sentiment Um, I had a task that I needed to do, which would take me 30 hours. And so, but it's a mindless task. So I said, why don't I binge every single Netflix documentary on nutrition Mm. and food? And so I watched, you know, 20, you know, 20 or so uh, documentaries. And not only did most of them contradict each other, they were just, it, it was, it was sad. Yeah. What kind of sort of mixture? I don't want to quite call it full up pseudoscience, but it was what people wanted to be true or felt like should be true or was consistent with their yeah. with their new age philosophies. And I was very disappointed in it. And and this is what people are paying attention to.
3: Yeah. So hopefully this book is a corrective to that. I mean, there's nobody, there's so few real voices of real scientists out there in the diet and nutrition space. There's plenty of books. There's plenty of right, people with right. MD after their name. Um, but, you know, it, it's so hopefully this is a corrective to that. And people get excited. We talk about the Haza, we talk about some other fun field stuff. People get excited about the science of, of metabolism and don't have to make stuff up.
2: So I want you to grade a tweet that I once posted, okay? Mm-hmm. I'll tell it to you. You give me A, B, C, D, E, or F. <laughs> okay, here's the tweet. If physicists, if a physicist wrote a diet book, it would contain one sentence burn. Calories at a higher rate than you consume them. <laughs>
1: uh, yeah. Yep. I that's, mean, it. that's it. That's it. That's How the, do you get there? Uh, yeah. The How problem you there, is you're not going to make good. any money with that.
3: <laughs> no. No. You know. That, so it's been fun watching the reaction to my book, and one of the reactions I've got was, "This book sucks. There's no simple diet strategy. Where's my fad diet?" Right.
2: You no. Know,
1: Where's the cure-all
2: diet, this one food you eat that makes the pounds melt away? Right,
1: right. Everybody Mm -hmm. wants that, yeah. But that's why it's a multi-billion dollar industry, because it's not about health. It's about psychological manipulation, you know, which can sometimes lead to health. If somebody, you know, if somebody believes in it enough and sticks to whatever the prescription is, they might end up losing weight and looking like they want. But it's because they ended up doing what you both just said. <laughs> yeah, and then they become an evangelist. That's the other side of this.
3: Somebody finally finds what works for them to lose weight, and, and then, all of a sudden then that's it, the only thing that works. That's and, what everybody and, has to do,
2: and everybody else has to do it too. Yeah. Too. Well, I'm delighted that in this show we have two sort of remarkable books that we're talking. You know, McDougall's book, Born to Run, and Herman, your book, Burn. You can't argue with that title, Burn, baby, Burn. Yeah. Uh, I, it seems to me that some combination of those two books would do us all well to heed the insights and advice uh, gleaned within them. So, so, Herman, take us out with some reflective final thoughts.
3: Um, well, energy is really at the core of it all, right? got to turn energy into babies if you want to be a successful species. And humans are really good at that, which is why we are all over the planet the most dominant species. And the task for the next generation is to get responsible, not just good at getting energy out of our environments and turning it into babies, but responsible about it and do it in a way that doesn't crash us out because forever is a long time and there's no guarantee we'll be here in a million years. Well, that's a very important point. What's the
2: average life expectancy of a mammal species?
3: Uh, it is about a million years or so. So we okay, are only, we in the first third here of our time. First
2: third. Uh, if will our brain make that shorter for us or longer?
3: Isn't that interesting? I mean, in, in one way, is it, it specializes us towards this way of living that could kill us because we get, were able to invent nuclear weapons. Yes. On the other hand, it gives us this adaptability to be able to figure it out. So which wins? I don't know. You tell me. I'm
2: asking. you the damn anthropologist. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> oh, we only look, back, really
3: look backwards. Nice. <laughs>
2: okay. Oh, you got it. I see. Okay. All right. So you're not going to go in the crystal ball. I will say, trauma and stress breeds wisdom and innovation, and I'd like to think that we will outlive our own uh, our own weaknesses and to see another day. Mm. This has been Star Talk Sports Edition. Gary O'Reilly, always good to have you and Chuck there as my co-host. Uh, I want to thank uh, Mr. McDougal who shared with us his uh, wisdom and insights being a journalist. Uh, reporting on anthropological tribes in mexico and professor herman poncer always good to talk to you we've known each other before we recorded star talks and uh, it's good to have you and you're into some really good interesting stuff and let this not be your last time on our show that'd be great all right excellent i'm neil degrasse tyson your personal astrophysicist as always keep looking up